Matthew 13:44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. When the net was full, they dragged it up onto the shore, sat down, and sorted the good fish into crates, but threw the bad ones away. That is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you understand all these things? Yes, they said, we do. Then he added, Every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. When Jesus had finished telling these stories and illustrations, he left that part of the country. He returned to Nazareth, his hometown. When he taught there in the synagogue, everyone was amazed and said, where does he get this wisdom and the power to do miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just the carpenter's son. And we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All his sisters live right here among us. Where did he learn all these things? And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own family. And so he did only a few miracles there because of their unbelief. Historical figure. I think he was just a person. I don't know. Just a normal person like us? He was a selfless person. I have no clue. He was a man. I think he was marketing genius because he got people to believe him. I don't, I don't think he's the son of God. I don't believe that at all. If David Copperfield was in the day of Jesus, he would be Jesus. I'm pretty sure he existed. Like I'm not going to say that he didn't exist. He was God's son, but so was Gandhi, and so was... Muhammad and so is, you know, we're all God's children. Jesus is someone I pray to. Well, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, um, and he, to me, is the, like, symbol of just ultimate forgiveness and ultimate love. He's sort of that, like, constant figure in my life. Jesus is also Isa in Arabic, and he was a messenger as well. He was just extremely enlightened, like, religiously and morally. Was somebody that um, just tried to um, impart wisdom on others and um, make the world a better place. I think he saw something that a lot of people didn't see and still don't see in others. And I, I think that's just a lot of love and, and hope. Jesus sort of seemed like an ominous uh, figure. You know, he just, he, he was God and it was hard to relate to him, but 
I think as I've grown in my faith a lot, I've really started to see Jesus as my closest friend. Who is Jesus? The most important question you'll ever answer. Because your answer has eternal consequences. For 2,000 years, people have been wrestling with the same question. Who is Jesus? He's been called a prophet. He's been called a wise man. A teacher. A good man. He's even been compared to and even put on the same level as Buddha, Confucius, Krishna, Muhammad. In this age of pluralism and more relativism, people see all religious leaders in all religious ways as the same thing. But that's not what Jesus said about himself. See, most of us would call ourselves Christians. In fact, 75% of American adults identify themselves as Christians. As Christians, it's important to know the Jesus we follow. Not just the one that we make up ourselves, but the Jesus that's described in Scripture. Jesus called himself in John 14, 6, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he said. In John 14, 7, he said, if you really know me, you will know the Father as well. In John 14, 9, he said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And in John 8, 58, he said, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. He was equating himself with God there. And he took it a step further. In John 10, 30, he said, The Father and I are one. The early church in Acts chapter 4 claimed witness to Jesus as well, saying there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Jesus said some radical things. He challenged the context in which he lived. And he's continued to challenge the context ever since. In a 2013 article in Time magazine, they regarded Jesus as the most significant figure in all of history. And as we begin this season of Lent, we need to understand and we need to grab hold of who Jesus is. And we need to know why Jesus is unique. We need to know why he is set apart from anyone else that has ever walked this earth. Ever. Why Jesus? The most common answer to the question, who is Jesus? Oh, he was a good moral teacher. How often have you heard that? They may not believe Jesus was the Son of God, but he was a good moral teacher. But Christian author C.S. Lewis says, we cannot call Jesus a good moral teacher. If Jesus was just a good moral teacher, 
then he lied about his most important teaching, his identity, and who he claimed to be. He was either a liar, which then means he's not a good moral teacher. You cannot lie and be a good moral teacher. You can't have it that way. Well, that leaves us with another option. He's crazy. Then there's one other option. Jesus could be actually who he said he was. The risen Lord of the universe. See, you only have those three options. Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. You don't have any other option. But you you can still run, but those are your three options. Some people are going to claim that, oh, if Jesus would just do a miracle, if he could just do a miracle for me, I'd believe him. I would then believe that he was the son of God. Well, listen to what our text said tonight. When he taught there in the synagogue, everyone was amazed and said, where does he get this wisdom? Pay attention. And the power to do miracles. Then they scoffed. Did you hear that question? Where does he get this wisdom and the power to do miracles? They saw the miracles. That's a ridiculous question, though. Where does anyone get the power to do miracles? Isn't that obvious? Where do miracles come from? Where does divine wisdom come from? Even a child can answer that. But it's the nature of unbelief to make the choice to reject and then blur out the obvious. They had seen the miracles. They had seen the healings. They even saw a little girl get raised from the dead before this. They heard the words he spoke. And now they're saying, where, this guy here, where did he get this information? How does he know this? Where did he get that power? They were just denying what was obvious in front of them. They knew the Torah inside and out. And we know that because of the example of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Jewish leader, and he came to Jesus in John chapter 3. He came in the dark of night ask him a question he said rabbi we all know that god has sent you to teach us your miraculous signs are evidence that god is with you they knew it here they knew it that's one of the greatest scripture proofs of the deity of christ right there It wasn't Jesus' followers. It wasn't his friends or his disciples affirming the fact that he was of God. He was God. It was his enemies. Think about that. 
over and over in the Bible, it's Jesus' enemies who never tried to refute that he did these miracles. You can read through the whole gospel record, and you will not find them ever deny that he did miracles. How could they? There were thousands of them taking place. John finished his gospel with, Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that could be written. Wow, this was obvious. His enemies didn't deny his wisdom. They just wanted to know where his wisdom came from. They already knew where their wisdom came from. If there was one thing that the Jewish people knew, it was that wisdom came from God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And yet they still ask, where does he get this wisdom? See, if a person says they need more evidence or more proof that Jesus is who he says he is, evidence is not the issue. You see, the people back then, they had all the proof they needed. It was right before them. They just didn't want to make the connection. It wasn't a question of evidence. It was a matter of choice. Maybe you've tried witnessing to someone, and they keep saying, prove it to me. Show it to me. Prove the Bible's true. How do I know that Jesus is really the Messiah? And they keep wanting more and more and more evidence. But evidence isn't the issue. It's a matter of choice. Listen to the text in John chapter 3. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light. For their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light, and they refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. We choose to believe what we want to hear and see because we don't want to change. We want things our way. So we make excuses to divert our attention away from the real issue. That's exactly what the people do in our text. In verse 55, it says, he's just the carpenter's son. And we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All his sisters live right here with us. He's not anyone special. He's just the carpenter's son. We know his family. Look, they're just ordinary people. What an irrelevant thought. Talk about trying to divert attention away from what's right in front of you. 
How does the idea that he came from an ordinary family and had an ordinary job, how does that affect the message he's saying? How does that impact in any way, shape, or form the fact that he did miracles? How can you use that to explain away the fact that he was raising dead people to life? It's irrelevant. That's not the issue. But that's what unbelief does. Unbelief will find something that doesn't matter and attach itself to that. We'll make other issues the real matter. So we don't have to look at what's right in front of us. See, the people didn't want to talk about the fact that he had wisdom or the fact that he was doing miracles. They wanted to point out that he didn't have the right family. Oh, he doesn't have the right job. See, it's hard for us to understand as Christians how they could just ignore all the miracles that were right in front of them. The wisdom that was coming out when he spoke. But that's what unbelief does. Unbelief is always looking for ways to validate itself. That's when we pick and choose what we want to believe. Or we create something entirely different in our imagination. If someone were to ask you to picture God, what would your image look like? In a recent survey, to answer that question, people responded with, oh, it'd be a great light. Oh, it'd be great power. Or a thunderstorm. All of these extraordinary things. And that's what we tend to do. We tend to look for the extraordinary when we're looking for God. But he's in the ordinary too. When we do our God sightings, they're not extraordinary things. But you know what? I'm waiting for one of you one of these times when I say, what is your God sighting? I'm waiting for one of you to say, Pastor, I got here today. I got up and I took a breath. That's my God sighting. Because you know what? That's a God sighting because that's ordinary and that's where God is. But we're always looking for the big things. He's not just in the big things. He's in the little things too. What we read in our text this this evening is that Jesus was ordinary. But that was offensive to the people. Jesus was God in the flesh. The people could no longer create a God in their image. Because he was standing right there in front of them. And they could no longer imagine him as something else. We do the same thing today. We don't want to believe who Jesus says he is. We'd rather make him into something else. Anything else that's easier for us to live with. See, when God shows up in the flesh, we can't make Jesus into anything but who he says he is. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He's our Lord. Oh, but it's so much easier to 
to believe in a God we can't see. Without Jesus, we can believe in a God without the cost of discipleship. Without Jesus, we can have faith without obedience. But when God shows up in the flesh as Jesus Christ, we can't rationalize him away. We have to make a decision. We either believe or we're offended. Scripture says they were deeply offended and refused to believe. They were offended by what he taught. They were offended because he unmasked their hypocrisy. They were offended because he spoke of their sinfulness and their need to repent. It didn't matter how many miracles Jesus could have performed before them. They still would have rejected him. He was too radical. He was too demanding. And he messed with their theological formulas. They only wanted to believe and be saved. They wanted God on their terms, not his. No amount of physical evidence is going to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a matter of the heart. In the first half of chapter 13, Jesus describes the problem. He tells seven different parables about the kingdom of heaven. Then the disciples didn't understand them. And so they kept asking him to explain. This is how he replied. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given, and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening... Even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. That is why I use these parables. For they look, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. See, the problem is a hardness of heart. It blinds us. We don't want to abandon our sinfulness. And until somebody is ready to break with their sinfulness, there's no believing. There's no seeing. There's no understanding. You'll never grab hold of the real Jesus until you're ready to break from your sinfulness. The Lord Jesus, the creator of the universe, could stand right in front of you and you'll miss him just like they did. Paul describes it this way in his letter to the Corinthians. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw it, that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. 
And it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say, it's all nonsense. Who is Jesus to you? See, the season of Lent is a time for searching our hearts. Are we willing to look at the darkness of our hearts? Looking for anything that's preventing us from seeing who Jesus is. Who he says he is. Not who we want him to be. We need to pay attention to the last verse in our text this evening. And so he did only a few miracles there. Because of their unbelief. As long as God chooses to work in us and through us in our ability to partner with him, our unbelief will hinder our work with him. God did many mighty works through Jesus. Some were done in response to faith. Some were done where there was no faith. He will act sovereignly with or without faith. Faith wasn't necessary in the gospel for Jesus to perform a miracle. But unbelief that was a result of a hardened, willful, prideful heart, that always stopped him. He never crossed that line. We need to pay attention to that. In the Psalms, it says, yes, again and again, they tempted God. They limited the Holy One of Israel. If you're not seeing God in your life, if you're not seeing Jesus in your life, search your heart. Bear it out for him. Maybe there's something there that he's saying, just clean it. Let me in so I can clean it. I'm right here, standing right before you. You just can't see me because you're holding on to stuff that you don't need to hold on to. See, we all have to answer this question. Who is Jesus? We need to examine our hearts and see if the Jesus that we believe in lines up with the one that he says he is. If you can't see him, maybe because you're looking for the wrong one. Maybe you're looking for the one you've created up here because it's easier. Some of you have been through some really tough stuff. Some of you are going through tough stuff. Jesus is right there before you. He's saying, I'm here. I'm right here. Some of you are grabbing hold and saying, I've got you, Jesus. I've got you. I'm never letting go. But some of you are saying, I don't believe you. Believe him. Open up your heart. Let him in. He's knocking, trying to say, let me in. Let me in. We're going to, as the last song plays, I want to open up the, the prayer bench You know if Jesus is tugging on your heart. Even if you've known him for years. Even in this moment, he could be saying to you, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. 
And maybe you just need someone, a brother or sister, to come alongside, wrap their arm around you, and show you that Jesus is indeed right there for you. So we're going to open up this during our last song. If you want a brother or sister to pray with you, please come forward. and Someone will come and, and put their arm around you and pray with you. We don't need to know your needs or anything, but man, we want to share the love of Jesus with you. So I'm going to ask that we just start that last song.